I want to say again, just do it again. I think I've shared this with you all before <clears throat> some time ago uh, when I was at Grace Community Church in California. Uh, John MacArthur was our pastor. Um, didn't know him personally, by the way, just to be clear. We didn't have coffee, you know, once a week or anything like that. <clears throat> That's right. But I'll never forget, uh, there was a moment when uh, a particular brother who was especially gifted stood up, and, and during a time of worship and song, he sang, and, uh, well, how, how do they say it? He had pipes like I had never heard. And uh, it, was a, it was a tremendous moment in congregational worship, <clears throat> And uh, Dr. MacArthur's wife leaned over to him. He told the story after he got up. She leaned over to him after the song, and she said, you better be good today. (laughs) I feel a little bit like that now. So thank you all for leading us in a time of worship, band, and ensemble. What a joy it is to sing to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. Amen, church. If you would, take your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. This was the text for last week, I thought. Uh, If you come to this church on a regular basis and you were here last Lord's Day, Pastor Rick Bertou stepped in the last minute, and uh, he preached a sermon for us last Lord's Day. My voice just would not hold up. I woke up Sunday morning, and and, uh, it wasn't there. And so I uh, worked on it with, with hot tea and prayer, and the Lord was clear as he could be. Um, you're not preaching this morning. He didn't say it. Circumstances did. And so um, the Lord was gracious through Pastor Rick to bring his word to his people last Lord's Day. Uh, I feel so much better. Many have asked me that question. I feel so much better. My voice is back for the most part, although at some point I may sip on water. I have not preached a full sermon. I have spoken since last Lord's Day, but not preached a full sermon since uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, hopefully, by God's grace, my voice will endure. Acts 16, 1 to 5, because you are the people of God and this is the word of God and today is the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand Uh, to hear from the God who still speaks to his people in his word. What a tremendous gift he has given to us in his word. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5, Luke wrote as he was carried along by God's spirit these words. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Notice, so the churches were strengthened in the faith. Forever, church, you may be seated. The longer I am in pastoral ministry, the more I discover the impact older and wiser men have had on my life. 
Positive impact, that is. In fact, I don't know if there is a single praiseworthy quality in my life and leadership that has not been nurtured by the Spirit of God through the example of an older, wiser, more faithful man of God. One of the many examples I could give of men who have left an abiding impact on my life and leadership and ministry actually gathered with us for worship a couple of weeks ago. I won't name him and embarrass him. He's not here. He doesn't live here. Uh, He actually currently lives in Texas, but he was with us a couple of weeks ago for worship, and he served as my pastor for a few years, has served as a mentor of mine for many, many years, now a couple of decades, and uh, through him, actually, I was introduced to expository preaching, that is, preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so on and so forth, which, of course, as, as you know, if you come here on a regular basis, has left a permanent impression on on me and has been a mark, by the way, of this church for decades. The Lord has used exemplary men like that particular brother, so many other brothers, to shape me into the man and the leader I am today. I'll take the blame for the faults. They, They get some of the accolades, by God's grace, for some of the successes well, while there are, there are doubtless examples, many examples of such Christian leaders that have left an indelible imprint on our lives, on our ministries, on our families, and so on and so forth, I would submit to you this morning, just in terms of a mere human example, okay, a merely human example, I don't think there is a better example than the Apostle Paul. In Paul, we have a tremendous model of gospel leadership and gospel ministry. In fact, volumes have been written, haven't they? It's hard to pick up a Christian book on leadership that doesn't at least have a chapter in it about the Apostle Paul. In fact, sometimes the entire book is about the Apostle Paul and the ways in which God used Paul to shape the church and to lead the church. He was not a perfect man. Paul had his failures. Paul, indeed, like the rest of us, was a sinner in need of a Savior, but he had come to know this Savior on the Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9, and he was forever changed, and the Spirit of God continued to change Saul, who would eventually be named Paul and called Paul by his Greek name, and who would also eventually become one of the greatest Christian leaders in the history of the church. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to consider Paul's example in in these five verses, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to do this by asking and answering three questions, three questions this morning. First, we're going to ask the question, how did Paul minister? How? How did he minister? Second, we will ask the question, what did Paul minister? What did he minister? First, how did he minister? Second, what is it that he ministered to others? What did Paul minister? And then finally, after how and what, we will conclude with the question, why? Why did Paul minister? This is where the text concludes in verse 5. How, what, and why? Young worshipers, so our younger theologians in the room, our children, who are still in here with us, there are a couple of items I want you to pay close attention to 
in the text, okay? So you can, by, by all means, focus on those three questions. If you can follow along with us through those three questions, then do that. Parents, please use these. And I say this from time to time. I'll continue to say it probably as a dad. Uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, if your children are with you, or grandparents, if your grandchildren are with you, then by all means, feel free to lean over and have conversations with them. Certainly whisper, that's fine, but have conversations with them about the word of God through the sermon. If I see you talking, I'm going to assume you're talking about the sermon. You have a free pass now, don't you? Here are the two items I want you to look for, younger worshipers. First, I want you to look for this in the text. Who joins Paul in ministry in this text? It's someone that's pretty significant. I'll give you a hint. A couple books of the New Testament are named after him. Who joins Paul in ministry in this text? And then second, because of Paul's faithfulness, what happens to the churches in verse 5? So because of Paul's faithfulness, something happens to the churches in verse 5. What is it? So both of these are right in the text as we march through these younger worshipers. You can jot those down. And by the way, if you get these answered, or if you don't, come see me afterward. I'd love to hear your answers. And if I didn't answer them well, I'd love for you to ask me. And we can talk about these together. Okay, well, let's begin with our first broader question. How did Paul minister? And I'm going to give you the answer first. And then we're going to see it through in the text, okay? So here's the answer to the first question, how? How did Paul minister? By accommodating for the gospel. That's the first part. By accommodating for the gospel. And the second part is this, while maintaining the purity of the gospel. That second part is just as important, by the way. And perhaps more so. So how did Paul minister? By accommodating for the gospel while maintaining the purity of the gospel. In other words, the message of Christianity, the message about Christ. That's how Paul ministered. Look with me now at the text, verses 1 through 3. Just read through those again quickly. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named, young worshipers, Timothy. Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now notice this, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and what did he do? He circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, it's, it's been just over a month since we've been in Acts, and so I, I feel obligated to give a little bit of context here, and this context really is going to come primarily from Acts 15. Uh, we are right in the middle, at this point in Acts, Acts chapter 16, we're right in the middle of what is often referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. You may have heard this language before. There are three missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts the Apostle Paul participated in, Okay. And we just finished the first one, if you're walking through with us in Acts. Paul and Barnabas were on the first one. Now Paul and Barnabas have gone separate ways. And now Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's taken along with him Silas. Timothy is now going to join him. But in the last chapter, Acts 15, which 
which tells the story of what happens in between Paul's first missionary journey and his second missionary journey. Luke recorded a dispute that originated in, uh, in Paul's home church, the church in Antioch. What was the dispute? Some of the Jewish Christians, this is review for those of you who are here. If you weren't here, perhaps this is new information. That's okay, we need this to understand what's happening in our text. Some of the Jewish Christians from in and around Jerusalem, which by the way was a predominantly, almost exclusively Jewish church at this time. So some of the Jewish Christians from that area had come to Antioch, which was predominantly a Gentile. the gospel. Now, this was a new thing. What's going on here? If you're a Jew, this is odd. And the oddest part about it is the Gentiles are coming into the church and they're not being circumcised. In other words, they're not becoming Jewish. It's okay for a Gentile to come in, but they need to be circumcised first. That's, that's the idea in Acts 15 among these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. Moreover, they don't simply need to be circumcised. They, they then need to seek to obey the law of Moses. And, and this is very, very important. Back in Acts 15, verse 1, and then another verse a bit later, they, they have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Why? To be saved. To become a Christian, authentically. To be saved. So that's, that's happening in Acts 15. What's Paul's response? <laughs> Paul's response is to vehemently disagree. Paul is resolute here. Now, remember Paul's background. What's his background? Is he a Gentile? No, no. Paul is as Jew as a Jew could be, right? Trained as a Pharisee. And uh, Paul, of course, resolutely opposes this teaching that Gentile Christians have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved, and all of this, so this dispute goes to Jerusalem. This is Acts 15. Again, a lot of review. This dispute goes to Jerusalem. The apostles, the elders, the church gathers together. Paul is there. Barnabas is there. These Jewish Christians that had come to Antioch and stirred up trouble, they're there. And the decision, the decision of the council is, is simply this. And it's good news for, for us in the room, by the way. The decision of the council is a Gentile person is saved in the same way a Jewish person is saved. Namely, by God's grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That's the decision in Acts 15. So this is all about preserving the gospel message of Christianity. This is the heartbeat of what it means to believe as a Christian. And uh, the apostles and the elders, of course, as they're led by the Spirit, get it right. Well, now what happens is that decision by the council of Jerusalem, big deal, big deal. Now that decision is being distributed by Paul on his second missionary journey to all the churches and by others who are, of course, going on mission. We don't have all of the details of all the brothers and sisters who are traveling around preaching Christ and establishing local churches and building up those local churches, but that decision is being distributed to Everyone. So that's a bit of background for us. Now it brings us to our text where we're told that on the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas came to Derby and Lystra. Now we're introduced to a new man, and that's Timothy. 
And Timothy's mother, now keep all that in your mind, okay? Keep Acts 15 in your mind. A Gentile does not have to be circumcised and seek to obey the law of Moses to be saved. No, no. Just like Jewish people, the Gentile is saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Christ is enough. Now there is a person who's half Jewish, Timothy. His mom is a Jew. We find out later in 2 Timothy, by the way, that her name was Eunice. Paul commends her for her faith. To Timothy, the same faith that dwelt in Eunice dwells in you. His father, however, Timothy's father was Greek, Gentile, and presumably an unbeliever. And by the way, I'm not sure I actually explicitly said this. Eunice, Timothy's mother, was a Jewish Christian, so she was a believer in Christ. His father was a Greek unbeliever, it seems, and Timothy had earned a good reputation among the believers in Lystra and Iconium. These are, these are a couple of towns uh, close to one another. Uh, Iconium, if I remember correctly, I don't have a map. In your Bibles, um, probably be a map there somewhere. And this is where things get a bit interesting, okay? A bit surprising. What is Paul? Follow this. What does Paul, the man who resolutely opposed the Jewish believers insisting that Gentiles be circumcised, what does he do next? Has Timothy circumcised? Is that odd? Anybody else? I mean, Acts 15 made a point to focus on this controversy. And now, now Paul takes Timothy, wants to take Timothy, of course, on mission with him, but in order to do so, feels like he needs to circumcise Timothy. By the way, this is an aside, and then we'll get back. But this is an aside, and I like asides. Love them. Love rabbits, love chasing them. Never catch them. Timothy's a grown man. I'm not going to get into details here, okay? We're not going to have a conversation about what this means. This is for parents and grandparents to make the decision. Timothy is a grown man. Paul comes to Timothy. I'm not sure how he presented it. I prayed last night. I thought about where we're going. Timothy, I know you trust in Jesus. Timothy says, yeah, I trust in Christ. You believe the gospel, don't you, Timothy? Yeah, I believe the gospel. You trust me, Timothy? I trust you, Paul. I need you to do something in order to go on mission with me. Now, men in the room, that's a sacrifice on Timothy's part. I mean it, right? I mean it. This, as I read through this, I even thought about it. As a 21st century American evangelical Christian, I have this built-in suspicion, even in, in me. I'm an American. After all, I have a built-in suspicion of authority, human authorities. I mean, I'm going to have a hard time with Paul. Show me chapter and verse here. But the ancient Christians, I want you to just, this is just an aside. Ancient Christians found people they could trust, and they trusted them. The ancients have a lot to teach us. 
They found people they could trust, and then they trusted them. This is trust. Trust in the Spirit of God working through the mentor, Paul, in Timothy's life. Okay? Just an aside, I thought I'd point that out. That was more personal than anything else. I thought about it this last, this last week. Okay, so why does Paul do this? Why does Paul have Timothy circumcised, especially after what we've just discussed in Acts 15? Well, let's begin with what the text actually says, and then we'll explicate it just a little bit. Look again at verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him, notice, because of the Jews who were in those places. So that's the cause. Because the Jews were in the places where they were going to be traveling and ministering the gospel, Paul says to Timothy, you need to be circumcised. And then additional explanation comes here. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So there are going to be Jews in these places. Moreover, the Jews who were in those places where Paul was going to be ministering the gospel, sharing the message of Jesus Christ, they knew who Timothy was. These are more like villages than towns. They knew who Timothy was, and they knew his father was a Greek. And for this reason, Paul had him circumcised. In other words, in other words, Paul was willing to accommodate and adapt for the sake of gospel ministry. That's what he does here. This is an accommodation, an adaptation for gospel ministry. In our text, Paul embraced. Circumcision becomes an avenue for the gospel. Okay, that's our text. At other times, back in Acts 15, Paul refused to practice circumcision when doing so would compromise the sufficiency of the gospel. So don't miss that. If circumcision serves as an avenue for gospel sharing, Paul circumcises. If circumcision is an addition to the gospel and it compromises the sufficiency of Christ, never circumcise. That's the difference. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we may look at that in just a few moments, and do it all for the sake of the gospel. That's his focus. Let me give you an example, a counterexample. So here in Acts 16, Paul circumcises as an avenue for the gospel among the Jewish people. Listen to what he wrote in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 5. You can just jot that down. You're welcome to turn there if you want to. I'm going to be there quickly. Then after 14 years, a lot of things are happening. Paul's recalling what's taken place. This is after his conversion. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So note, this incident that he's recalling in Galatians 2 happened before where we are in Acts 16. And there's discussion about the incident. We're not going to chase that one. Verse 2, Galatians 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, I presented to them the message that I was preaching to ensure that the message I was preaching was the same message they were preaching. Verse 3, Galatians 2, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. And then Paul says, although he was a Greek. So Titus is not Jewish, not even half Jewish. Titus is Greek. He's Gentile. 
And then he gets firmer, verse four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Here he's probably alluding to those Jewish Christians from Jerusalem and perhaps even others who insisted that everyone, including Gentiles, be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And then he says this, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul saw a difference here. There was a difference between the incident that we just read about in Galatians 2, where Paul refused to circumcise Titus. He would not circumcise Titus. And then the circumstances and the response of Paul in our text, Acts 16, where he actually does circumcise Timothy. What are those differences? Well, one of the differences I just mentioned, Titus was a Greek through and through. Timothy was half Jewish. Some even argue, by the way, some argue that Timothy would have been considered Jewish by the Jewish people because his mother was Jewish. And we do have later Jewish documents that demonstrate that Jewish lineage is predominantly through the mother. But those are later. We don't know. Uh, he's at least a half Jew, considered a half Jew. Perhaps he's considered Jewish because his mom is Jewish. But Titus, no. Titus is Greek. But there is another important difference. And I've mentioned it a moment ago. I'm going to highlight it now. Paul has Timothy circumcised, and we'll just use this language, as an avenue for the gospel, okay? He's maintaining the purity of the gospel. Circumcising Timothy is just as an avenue for gospel ministry among unbelieving Jewish people. The Jewish Christians who insisted that Paul's okay using circumcision as an avenue to proclaim Christ. What he will not do is add circumcision to the gospel and thereby compromise the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He makes a similar statement, and I think I'm just going to read it to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm spending longer here. We won't spend as long on point two, okay? We're still under the first question, how? Which is the primary point of this text, I think. Paul makes a more direct statement about the kind of thing we find in our text in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Now, let me just read that to you. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. You may be familiar with this text. Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now listen to that. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. He's accommodating, he's adapting for the gospel, for gospel ministry. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Think Paul has a focus in life? 
And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's Paul's focus. He viewed all of life as an avenue through which Christ might more effectively be proclaimed to others so that more and more people might come to know Jesus Christ and treasure Christ and worship Christ. That's the purpose. So let's do this as we're about to transition to our second question. Let's highlight this reality that may prove helpful for you, it is for me. Reaching out to people with the gospel is not so much an added activity to our lives. Reaching out to people with the gospel is not so much an added activity to our lives as much as it is being more intentional about the already existing activities and relationships we have. Now, reaching out to people with the gospel does indeed mean proclaiming Christ. Look, you've got to say the gospel. You've got to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel at some point or another. But what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9 and what he's modeling in Acts 16 is the Jewish heritage can be employed as an avenue through which Christ is proclaimed to us. And then when he's around non-Jewish people, the Gentile heritage can be used as an avenue through which he's, Christ is proclaimed to others. You see that? I'll give you some examples. Some of you parents in the room, this is an already existing relationship for you. You have children. And yes, one of, the, one of your jobs as a parent is, uh, especially you know, as, they're, as they're young and toddling around, is, is to kind of play this game, right? You do some of this. And you want to keep them safe. And you want to protect their physical well-being. These kinds of things. But parent, let me tell you, you have actually a more significant eternal stewardship than that. And that is to use your parenting as an avenue to share Christ with your children. as an avenue through which you model Christ and share Christ with others. And when you fail, repent, and thereby, of course, point to Christ. Right? Same thing, husbands, wives, same thing. What, what is this vocation of marriage about? A whole host of things, not the least of which is, it's an avenue to share Christ with your spouse. If your spouse is an unbeliever, that's a beautiful avenue. Paul actually talks a bit about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If your spouse is a believer, it's also a wonderful avenue to build up your spouse in the gospel. That's your primary calling. Employ marriage in service to Christ. I spoke with a brother recently. Let's even go to things like a hobby. I spoke with a brother recently who loves to play golf. Loves to play golf. Uh, golf is a source of encouragement to him and perhaps uh, sanctification at times as well depending on how he's playing. Larry, wherever you are. Larry's not the one I'm talking about here, by the way. Larry just likes to play golf. And as I was talking to him, he was talking with me about the ways in which he's excited to employ golf in order to establish relationships so that he can model Christ to others and share the gospel with others. 
You see, he didn't have to go out and find a new activity to preach Christ. He asked a very simple question. What do I like to do? I like to play golf. How can I use golf as an avenue for the gospel? That's the kind of thing the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Um, I used to love working out with a group of people. I, I still would, I think, um, like doing that. I don't get to do it anymore. But we used to work out together, a group of people, and uh, many of them were Christians. This was back in Texas. And we'd get together, and we'd do this workout early in the morning, and then at, at times, we'd be really intentional to invite some of these younger men into this group to work out with us that we knew did not know Jesus Christ. And tremendous gospel opportunities through that time working out together. What were we doing? I enjoyed working out. I was already doing it. How can I employ it in service to Christ as an avenue for the gospel? That's how Paul views all of life. All of it. So in summary, let's move on to our next question. In summary, how did Paul minister? By accommodating for the gospel, of course, while maintaining the purity of the gospel. He wouldn't add to the gospel. And if he sensed it was about adding to the gospel, he would resist it resolutely. Second question, what did Paul minister? Here we will be brief, okay? What did Paul minister? Look down at verse four with me, if you would. So that was really the bulk of the text. Verse four now, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So Paul, remember this, Paul, Silas, and now Timothy, they're visiting various churches in these areas, and they are delivering to these churches the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Now, what was this decision? This is what we started the sermon with, Acts 15. The decision was very simple. Jewish person or Gentile person, it doesn't matter. Human being... A human enters a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. So what did Paul minister? It really is just the gospel. Paul ministered the message of Christ. Or you could even jot down here, he ministered the message that sinners enter a right relationship with God by grace through faith in Christ. That's what he ministered. Friends, just take note here, and this happens time and time again as we walk through the text. The gospel services as what is central to who we are as followers of Christ. Take note. You ever feel like that? You ever, you ever feel like, okay, I'm going to be around somebody and... And, uh, and you don't say it in your head, right? You don't, we don't speak with that level of honesty typically with ourselves because it's, it, we're ashamed of it. Typically, it just happens, and then if we're reflecting honestly, we will admit it. We're around someone, and we're trying to impress. Maybe, maybe you never do this. Maybe it's just me. We're around someone, and we're trying to impress them, and, and then we reflect on it, and we really were acting like someone we, we aren't. And we were trying to be someone or become someone we aren't so that we're accepted by them. Now, you young people in the room, young men and women, teenagers, 
I think if you're honest with yourself, you understand this as well. But guess what? Everyone else in the room does too. Trying to become something we're not in order to be received by someone. It's the opposite of the gospel. That's not what happens with Christianity. You see, the good news of Christianity is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news of the gospel, the good news of of the message of Christianity is that you do not have to become something you are not this morning. Christ is what you need. He is sufficient. He became what you could not become in becoming human in perfect obedience to the Father in dying on the cross in your place and for your sins and being buried and rising from the dead in glorious power on the third day. And now, even this morning, he offers you life and freedom and joy and fulfillment in him and a right relationship with the Father. And the call for you is simply this, embrace Christ in faith. Surrender to Christ. Treasure Christ. Everything you need is in Christ. And then, okay, it gets a little bit better. A little bit better. I think it's a lot better. (laughs) I don't have to become something. You don't have to become something you're not in order to enter a right relationship with God. We're brought into a right relationship with God because of who Jesus is and because of what God the Son became in the incarnation for us. And then when he brings us into a right relationship with him, then we actually do begin to experience authentic change and the kind of change we need. We're forever changed and being changed by God's grace. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. Uh, the, things that, the things that I once loved, I'm beginning to hate. And I, and I knew I needed to hate them. I knew this was wrong, and yet I wanted it. I'm beginning to not want it. The day is coming when Jesus returns when we won't want it. And we'll only ever want what pleases God. (laughs) We'll always, this is wonderful. When Jesus comes back, we will spend eternity doing everything we want to do. And everything we want to do will be perfectly in line with God's will for us. But not yet. Even as Christians, we experience tension, but it's happening. It's happening. So friends, if you're here this morning, perhaps, you've, perhaps you thought, if I go to church enough, if I attend enough studies, Bible studies or whatever, if I pray enough, if I, if I stop doing these things and I start doing these things, maybe then, maybe then I'll be enough. Maybe God will accept. It's not the If that's where you are, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Others would love to talk with you after the service. Would you have the courage, if you have questions about this or you'd like to talk more about it, when you exit one of these double doors behind you, take a left, and I mentioned that rude out, rude, no, room. The room out there called Crossroads on the right-hand side before you leave this building, 
Uh, there will be an elder in there. I may be out there. I'd love to visit with you. He would love to visit with you about what it means to come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to treasure the sufficiency of Jesus for us. But this is, this is what Paul ministered, the gospel. What he ministered was the message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right? Finally, third, why did Paul minister? Why did Paul minister? Let me give you the answer and, and then spend just a few moments as we close wrapping this up. Why did he minister? Paul ministered for the strength and growth of churches. The plural is important here. Why did Paul minister? He ministered for the strength and the growth of churches. Now, notice verse five with me. So, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now, notice that this strengthening that is happening among these churches and through these churches, it takes place with reference to or in the faith. This is not the kind of subjective Christian faith that we would use in a sentence like this. Um, My personal faith in Jesus. Not that kind of faith. It's the objective Christian faith. When we speak about what we believe as Christians, it's the faith, you see. And so they're being strengthened. Don't miss this church. They're being strengthened in sound doctrine. They're being strengthened in the Christian faith, the objective Christian faith that if you've been baptized into Christ, you have embraced. It's who you are. And it's becoming who you are. Moreover, notice that churches continue to increase through Paul's ministry. And again, this is happening. This is happening as they are being strengthened in the faith. Now they're increasing in numbers daily. And we see this throughout Acts. This is really one of the central messages of the book of Acts and what God is doing in the early church. There are a couple of implications I want to draw your attention to. I know I said I was closing. I am. I didn't tell you how long the closing was. Couple of implications I want to draw your attention to. I didn't preach last week. I've got some catching up to do. We're, we're coming close to a landing. Don't worry. And I hope it's smooth. I hope it's not too rough. I hope it's not perpendicular. First, first implication of what Paul says here in verse 5 Paul was committed to the churches, plural, not merely one local church. This is, this is important. Paul was committed to the churches not merely one local church. It is the churches that are strengthened in the faith. It is the churches that are increasing in numbers daily. And I I don't think we can hear this enough. I don't think I can hear it enough because we exist in what you could call a competitive church climate. We don't like to admit that as pastors. In fact, we're ashamed of it, but it's true. A competitive church climate. Let me suggest to you, church family, that it would not be a success for the kingdom. If First Baptist Powell increased while Wallace Memorial dissolved, it would not be a success for the kingdom if First Baptist Powell increased while Bell's campground closed their doors.
in Knoxville or Christ's covenant dissolved. We are, I am, sinfully myopic. If gospel success looks like our local church growing at the expense of other local churches, that is sin. If our goal for church growth is to consume other local churches, we're in sin. And we're, I think, doing more harm to the kingdom than eternal good. What might it look like? I don't know. I don't know. What might it look like if we took our connection to other churches more seriously? What does that look like? I'll tell you, honestly, I'm tr- I'm, I want this. I aspire. You know, it's like, it's like humility. It's something I've heard about. I want it. It's a land out there, and I want to go there. It's just hard to get there. And on my way, I'm proud that I'm getting there. It's like that, I think. I want this. What if we were more committed to what the ancient Christians called, this is the language they would use in the Nicene Creed, for example, or the Constantinopolitan Creed. It's a mouthful, isn't it? I know. They use language like this. We believe in the one holy, here's the word, Catholic and apostolic church. Don't think Roman Catholic, okay? I have a lot of I have Roman Catholic friends, but don't give them that word. They can't have it. Can't have it. Catholic means whole. It comes from a Greek word. It means whole. Universal is a translation that gets used from time to time. We actually use universal when we recite the Apostles' Creed here. I'm torn about that because it's not quite enough, but it's okay for now, okay? It's okay for now. Catholic means more than universal. It means the entire church. That means the church universal, the church in heaven, the church of yesteryear, the church of tomorrow. The whole church. What would it look like if we were committed to the one holy Catholic, lowercase c, apostolic church? What would that look like? May God be pleased to do that. May he be pleased to do that here. And then second implication Second, church health appears to be connected to church growth in the text. Church health appears to be connected to church growth. Don't misunderstand me. It is possible to grow numerically for all sorts of reasons. All sorts of reasons. Friends, Dollywood has grown. I'm going to submit to you we don't develop a mission that is perfectly consonant with Dollywood, even though I'm thankful for Dollywood. They're not the church. A church can experience immense growth on account of doctrinal compromise. That can happen. It's possible for a church to grow numerically because they're compromising the gospel. However, we would not justifiably call this church growth, but we would call this something like church decay comparable to the rapid growth of a cancerous tumor. Genuine church growth, healthy church growth, takes place in Acts by means of doctrinal purity and faithfulness and commitment to the gospel. That's how church growth takes place. This is the case in verse 5 where the church is strengthened in the faith, that is in the beliefs and practices of Christianity, and experiences increase in numbers as a result. May God give us grace to be that kind of a church. Okay, 
We've answered three questions. We really are wrapping up now. There's, a, there's one of our teenage boys in the room. I won't name him. Actually, a couple of them. Um, they're twins. Now you can find them, okay? About <laughs> times today. And they're right. We've answered three questions from Acts 16. How did Paul minister? By accommodating for the gospel while maintaining the purity of the gospel. Second, what did Paul minister? He ministered the gospel, the message of Christ. He ministered the message to others that all people and any person enters a saving relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And finally, why did Paul minister? He ministered for the strength and growth of the churches. Plural. We all need the positive impact of faithful men and women of God in our lives and upon our ministry. And in this text, the Spirit of God grants us a model. In the Apostle Paul, my prayer is, may God give us the grace to faithfully follow this model. Let's pray together.